Good morning and welcome to this week's edition of the Property Buyers and Sellers Podcast. My name is Ken Hume. It is the 26th of February 2021 and we have a lot of news this week on the property market, particularly regarding the stamp duty holiday and the likely extension, uh, which we'll hear news of, we expect, in the budget next week on Wednesday the 3rd of March. And we're all holding our breath for that. But it seems that the newspapers may have got some leaked information which gets us ahead of that. So that to come. We've also got a fabulous quote of the week this week. And that's something that I intend to incorporate every week in the podcast, a little motivational phrase that I hope you enjoy. And then talking this week about leasehold property and the pros and cons, how to do it if you have a freehold property and you need to split the title, i.e. if you have two flats and you don't have leases, and also from a buyer's perspective, what you need to look out for, what the trip points are and how to get over them. So welcome and thank you very much for joining me. Um, Today, the big news and the thing we're going to start on is, of course, the big news with the stamp duty. What we hear from a report from the Times, which has also been published in all other major newspapers from what I can see. And for that reason, I think this has come leaked from the government. Sometimes the government like to leak their intentions ahead of the actual announcement because the feedback from property experts and influencers can actually make them change their mind. So they leak something out see what the consensus is, see whether everybody thinks it's a good thing, and then maybe tweak it ahead of the actual announcement. So we never quite know what we're going to get. And of course, this is only hearsay at the moment, but we believe it's probably about right. And what it seems is that the government is preparing to extend the stamp duty holiday to maintain momentum in the housing market. The new extension will last for three months until the end of June, according to the Times. Now, the Extension is generally a good thing. It will release pressure on the conveyancing system and stop sales falling through. The difficulty with it is, of course, it just moves the goalposts further down the road and could further down the road and could create a cliff edge uh, when we get to the end of June. But what I would say is it's positive. And the reason it's positive is that we are trying to get out of a pandemic here. And we've got the vaccine making fantastic progress at the moment. I'm so proud of how the country's handled that. It's been absolutely incredible and ahead of most developed nations. Um, and with that, we've got a light at the end of the tunnel in terms of people being released. But also we've got the spring selling season, which is a critical one for property. If you withdraw the incentive for people to buy when the pandemic is just about to end, no one's going to move. Everybody's going to stay put. And there's already a shortage of property. If you extend it, as they're suggesting, until the end of June, then actually what you do is you enliven the spring property market. And that's fantastic news for the property market. People like to move in the spring. Why? Well, the weather's milder. They get their itchy feet. And it's particularly this year, I think, because we've all been locked down for so long. We just want to get out there and do something, you know. So I think it's going to be a great time for the property market if the extension comes around. The only thing I would say is that I think that when government legislate with things like this, it can have unintended consequences. We could see uh, a bit of a bubble and we could see a, a real boom on the back of this. And a tapered end would be better than a, a flat stop. What I'd like to see is the three months go to the end of June and then it'd be tapered in July and August. But we'll see. So the full details of the Chancellor's plans are expected on Wednesday, the 3rd of March. And of course, next week's podcast on the 5th of March, we'll be breaking that down for you, telling you what it means and the effect that it might have on the property market. So ahead of that, some other news as well. Um, 
We've got a number of different things. Property experts are split in the effects of the deadline. Um, some people are saying that it's going to cause a, a boom, summer bust. And I think that's that's a given, really, isn't it? What is a third lockdown meant for the property market? This is an article from the Sad Agent Today where Ellie Donaghy uh, says that homeowners are using this time to review their location and home, and many are choosing to plan moves for later on in this year. On the subject of, subject of mortgages, she says the number of deals available, and this is critical because without the supply of mortgages, people can't move on. So people deals available for people with a 10% deposit has now increased to around 160 deals. Well, there was only 51 last October, so that is a massive jump. Um, and by demand jumped 13% year on year. Well, that's not really a surprise given where we are with the stamp duty incentive and the look of that closing. Now I want to talk a little bit about leasehold properties. I visited a lady this week. Leasehold properties are one of those things that are very confusing for first time buyers and can be a little intimidating. And if you're a first time buyer in London, you're probably buying a flat. And that can be scary. It can be scary for a number of reasons, not least the Grenfell tragedy and whether the block that you're looking at is affected by this. Now, what's happened with Grenfell is a terrible tragedy. The materials used weren't sufficient to retard fire and the whole of the outside of the building caught light. And this is due to a certain material that was used. This material was also used in blocks across the UK regularly. And what's happened since then is that those materials are being removed, often at great cost to the leaseholder, i.e. the owner of those flats. There is a government fund. And that government fund has grown under political pressure. But quite often, lessees have found themselves holding the baby and paying out huge sums of money to repair their buildings. And they have things like what we call waking watches. And this is where you have sort of security guard that will patrol the common parts of your block so that if there's a fire, they can physically alert everybody in the building that there's a problem and everybody can get out. Now, if you think about that, that's one person employed every eight hours, let's say 24 hours in a day. Even if you only have one person in a medium sized block, which you would need, then that's 24 hours, three employees per shift. Uh, and, you know, you can imagine how that's going to increase service charge or how, in fact, it has increased service charges with some lessees actually ending up bankrupt, um, going into massive debt and unable to sell as well. Because, of course, when you have one of these problems, uh, it's massive. You can't sell because no new lender will come along and borrow. The form that you need on a block that's over four stories is a thing called an EWS1. And this is an external wall fire safety certificate. This doesn't apply to all blocks. So you need to research it depending on what you've got and where it is. Um, but it does apply to large blocks generally. So you need to make sure that if there are fireworks to be done, it's a very good question for a first time buyer to ask. Question, have they been carried out? And have all the costs been met or are there future costs which you need to consider in the service charge, which may be paying for works already done retrospectively? So looking at the service charge quite carefully out there, first time buyers, um, leasehold freehold. Let's talk a little bit about that. Well, freehold, I always think about it. It's not technically exact, but a good way to look at it, I think, is that you own the ground below and the sky above. So a freehold tends to be a house and you own everything both below it and on top of it, if you will. So there is no one else to answer to. The whole property is yours. But what then if we take that property and divide it into two and it becomes two flats? Then questions come up such as who is going to pay if the roof needs repairing? There has to be regulations put into place to cater for this. And similarly with 
there'll be a communal area, most likely, i.e. a small hallway, which leads to both flats. Who is going to redecorate that? What if there are wiring issues in that area? What if the entry phones stop working? Who's going to mow the lawn in the front garden, which may be shared, or indeed the rear garden, which may be shared? All these things are provided for in leases. So leases are not necessarily the arch enemy that some will have you believe. They are necessary. And in fact, mortgagees will not lend. That's your mortgage lender. They will not lend on freehold flats because they know very well that if there are issues, there's no guarantee that anyone but the person in the flat that they've financed is liable. Um, so you could find yourself in a situation where the roof has gone and how do you know who is going to pay for it? That's what leases are for. That's why building societies and banks require them. And these leases tend to take the form of a number of years. And sometimes, and this is where it gets a bit gray, freeholders can be sharks and sometimes managing agents can be sharks. And you need to try and determine whether the costs involved in things like service charges and service charges are the costs for things like the cleaning, the gardening, the buildings insurance. So you need to check what they are and what they're likely to be in the future. Um, but basically, when it comes down to the leases themselves, they tend to fall into originally either 99 year leases, 125 year leases, 199 year or 999 year. Obviously, if you've got a 999 year lease, that's wonderful. And it's something that you'll never have to renew, which is great news. Um, but actually, what you might find is that you've got a flat with a originally a 99 year lease, which is reduced to under 80 years. And that's a problem because if the lease is under 80 years, you will need to approach the freeholder in order to extend it back up because lenders don't like leases that are under certain numbers. Now, these numbers vary by the lender. Some require that the lease is at least twice the mortgage term. Some require that the lease is three times the mortgage term. So to put that into perspective for you, if you have a 25 year loan and the building society or bank that you're using requires twice the term, then the minimum lease would be 50 years. But if they require three times the term, then the minimum lease they would look at would be 75 years. What muddies the waters more is now we have 30 and 40 year mortgages. Of course, twice 30 years is 60 or 90 as a minimum. So it does depend on the lender you're using. And bear in mind, as the lease drops, so the popularity drops too from the number of lenders that will lend on it, which affects its overall appeal. So what is short and what is long? This is subjective, isn't it? Very hard to say exactly. Um, but people generally look for a lease in excess of 90 years. Um, if it's getting towards 80, that's a bit more of a worry. It may be the case that there have been inquiries already. And the cost of lease extensions can run from £1,000 up to, you know, whatever, really, depending on the value of the flat. There's a thing called the marriage value. And there are two questions that they ask. It gets a bit technical, but basically... The two questions. One is, what is the flat worth with the lease it's currently got? Let's say it's got a 70 year lease and it's worth 300,000 with a long lease. Then with a 70 year lease, it might only be worth 250,000 pounds. So the difference between the 250,000 pounds short lease version and the long lease version at 300,000 pounds is 50,000 pounds. And the marriage value is what we base the value of the lease extension on. And the marriage value is dividing that number by two. So in that case, the marriage value would be 25,000. And that is the amount that a freeholder could reasonably ask for an extension of that lease back up to a 99 year term.
Not all freeholders are reasonable with these requests and some will be totally unreasonable. And there is a body called the Leasehold Valuation Tribunal and they are there for independent appeals in this matter. And if you go through them, you will also find that your ground rent does not increase. They'll make the ground rent peppercorn at the point when you extend your lease. Something else regarding leases, when you're looking around, especially you first time buyers out there and actually sellers as well. I've had a conversation recently with a vendor who had two flats but had never created leases. So I explained to them what I would do is create leases and these leases should be, in the case of this particular building, to maximise her investment in the property, but also be fair to buyers, would be to create leases of 125 years. And that's on completion. So rather than create leases and put them into her name and the cost of that, as she doesn't require a lease, but the new buyers will, to get a solicitor to draw up leases and then those leases to be 125 years. So she owns the freehold. She's now selling the leasehold. Really, she has no interest in keeping hold of the freeholders. Most small freeholders don't, especially when the lease is 125 years. There's no premium coming any time in the future. So why would she set it at that level? Well, it would give buyer confidence. When you've got a 125-year lease, you know that that's not coming back to haunt you for renewals and that kind of thing. So in this case, this particular lady, we suggested make the leases 125 years and make the ground rent. This is an amount that the let the freeholders can charge a leaseholder and this is like um, a regular payment that comes up annually and we suggest in this case that she make the ground rent 400 pounds per annum now this will depend on the area style type and value of the property but the ground rent is something that all leasehold properties will have there'll be two separate charges generally sometimes more sometimes the insurance the building's insurance proportion will be separate but the three questions you should be asking if you're a, a leasehold buyer a first-time buyer are a what is the length of the lease b what is the ground rent c what is the service charge which will be the higher amount which incorporates the sometimes the building's insurance you need to find out whether it's included actually because that can sometimes be separate or stripped out so it sounds cheaper even worse um and, you know, what is that service charge and what does it consist of? Generally, with a small building, it would be it can be a thing we call shared costs, which basically means that there isn't a managing agent looking after the day to day running and the leaseholders that live in the block just manage it themselves and they share any costs such as a roof repair as and when in an ad hoc fashion. But sometimes you'll find there's a managing agent involved who acts for the freeholder and collects an annual service charge. And the larger the block, the more likely you'll have one of these managing agents. And the key thing you need to look at as a buyer is what are the charges? Are those charges reasonable? And if they're not reasonable, why are they not reasonable? And what's being done about it? You know, sometimes you'll find with some blocks that they're getting together and they're exercising their right to manage, which is a fabulous thing for a buyer because you'll see those charges come down more often than not. So look out for that. And as I say, with regards to going back to this lady and her particular issue. So she created two leases, 125 years of lease for the first time buyer. So they have no problems. And then what she can then do is offer each of those buyers, she was two flats in this case, a share of the freehold, a 50% share of the freehold. And this would mean that each buyer would actually buy their proportion of the freehold, their 50% share in this case. And the value of that freehold would be a multiplier of the ground rent. Um, so if we say that multiplier, it can be between 10 and 12 
typically. So if for round figure's sake, we take it as 10 and the ground rent is 400 pounds per annum, then the value of the freehold of each flat is 4,000 pounds. Now you may think, oh gosh, 4,000 pounds, that's a lot. But the flip side of the coin is you're in charge of your own destiny. You can set your own service charges. And that's a great thing on its own because it means the charges are often lower and there's no managing agent taking a fee in the middle or freeholder taking ground rent. And of course, that 400 pounds, once you've been there 10 years, becomes zero. So if you get an opportunity to buy the freehold and you can afford to do so, then it's well worth doing it, especially because it puts you in control in terms of works and bits and pieces, which can be so important when you'd be amazed sometimes freeholders come along and charge extortionate amounts for things and it's quite difficult to challenge especially in the smaller buildings so that's it in terms of leases i hope that's been helpful it's very hard to explain leases because it can get quite complicated we talk about marriage values lease extensions and things but it is quite complex and i know it's intimidating for first-time buyers um you know, very difficult to get your head around. And uh, in London, because it mostly means flats, if you're a first time buyer, you do need to be cautious. You should take advice from your solicitor or trusted advisor, might be your estate agent. Our clients quite often come to us for a chat and advice. And often people renewing, extending their leases come to talk to us as well. Um, and you're welcome to do the same. So in terms of surveys as well, for first time buyers, just wanted to talk a little bit on surveys. We quite often find with first-time buyers particularly, that they are shocked by and intimidated by surveys. And this is because there's a disconnect between what first-time buyers often expect a survey to say and what surveyors need to do. And what I mean by that is that when you buy a property, the euphoria and excitement and emotion is, is a wonderful thing. And actually, as an agent, to be part of that is one of the best parts of our job. You know, to, to be with a young couple when they walk into a place and say, this is it, this is us, um, it's just wonderful. It's just the excitement is palpable and, and really beautiful. And then of course, they get a survey done and, and with the surveyor, the surveyor is not there to vindicate your choice widely. And often it's felt that that's what is expected. So for instance, common issues, might be that they would say, we recommend a wiring check, uh, you know, for the electrics. Often they'd say we recommend that the plumbing is checked, that the boiler is checked, that the heating is checked. It's not necessarily that they've spotted anything wrong with those things. It's just that they need to disclaim that they haven't investigated them fully. And even with a full house building survey, they won't be checking the electrics. They won't be checking the plumbing to any great degree. Those tests you'd have to do separately. So often people will have a basic survey and then carry out investigations according to what the surveyor has picked up. Um, and sometimes the more astute buyers that have already, already know the problems will then address those problems individually and typically have independent assessment of things like the boiler, the drains, maybe dampened timber, maybe the electrics, because all these things come into it. But a surveyor is not there to vindicate your choice in the way of, oh, wow, what a lovely choice you've made. Uh, and I think it's important to put that in there. And most problems are not insurmountable. You know, we can get around most things. If there is an issue and you're worried about it and you talk to the agent, the agent's good and the sellers are reasonable, then most of the time you can get these things investigated and they're not as big a deal as they first seem. And remember also that if you're buying a property on the second hand market, it's not the same as buying something brand new. 
if you're buying something brand new, you can expect the wiring to be 18th edition, current regulations, and everything to be under warranty. Well, of course, on the secondhand market, that isn't true. Nothing is going to be brand new. So you can expect a level of ongoing maintenance for all things. And this is part of the buying process. But bear in mind that you're not paying that new build premium. You're getting a bigger flat or house, probably. And so you have to look at all things and take it all into account rather than one specific aspect. So, you know, if you've got problems, you're looking at a property and you have survey issues, then I would say to you, take advice from specialists, take a deep breath. If you haven't had a survey done yet, then don't expect it to vindicate your choices and say how delighted the surveyor is because it's cheap. They never will. They're not there to do that. Best ways they value it at the price you're paying. They'll never suggest that it's worth more than you're paying. Why? Because that would increase the liability on them if property prices fell or it was repossessed um, because most surveyors will be acting for the lender as well as you. So they'll be advising the lender on whether they think it is a reasonable value property. So there are different types of survey going from what we call a desktop valuation now. And these are becoming more and more common. And this is where the lender, instead of actually going round to the property, will actually do a valuation by looking at data. They'll often do a street view on the property. Sometimes they'll drive by. Sometimes they won't if they're not local. They'll then take comparables from local estate agents. They'll look at land registry prices, what the last one sold for. And then they'll do what we call the desktop valuation. And what this means is they'll come up with a figure considering all those factors and see whether they think that figure is reasonable given the amount of money that you are borrowing. Um, and most of the time, those figures will marry. If they feel that you're paying too much, they might do what we call down value the property. And this is where, for instance, you may be paying 250000 for a property and they'll suggest it's worth two hundred and thirty. Um, and then there are issues because, of course, they'll only lend you the percentage that you're borrowing of two hundred and thirty not 250,000, and you may need to approach your estate agent or seller in order to renegotiate that if you can. It's not necessarily the case that they will want to renegotiate with you because valuation is not an exact science. It's an opinion, and the variance in values can be quite striking. And we often find that people are talking about valuation differences of 10% just between surveyors. So one surveyor might say a flat's worth 250,000. Another might downvalue it to 210,000. A massive difference, I know, but that sort of thing can happen. So it really does depend. Remember, when you put an offer on the property, you liked it. Why did you like it? Probably because it was the best one you'd seen. And that makes you quite a good judge of value in my experience. So, you know, don't bear in mind, bear in mind that, you know, not everything that a surveyor says is entirely 100% correct because this is not an exact science. Really important to bear that in mind when you're buying. We're excited to see the return of the first-time buyer as well. More and more first-time buyers are around now, and we're delighted to see that happening. So that's why I wanted to give a little bit of advice on that. Um, that's it for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back same time next week for another edition, of course, and that will be post the Chancellor's announcement on stamp duty. We're excited to bring you that and tell you what's going on. And this week's quote of the week, I promised you at the end of the podcast, here it is. It's from a lady called Michelle Ruiz. If people are doubting how far you can go, go so far that you cannot hear them. Love that. That's Michelle Ruiz. If people are doubting how far you can go, go so far that you cannot hear them. Love that. That's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. Look forward to your company 
on the next broadcast. Take care of yourselves and your family. <laughs>